For a month and a half, we've been studying the seven parables of Jesus in Matthew 13 that teaches us about the kingdom of God. The seven parables have shown us what the future kingdom of God looks like in our present world. It is my intent that our study deepens our understanding of God's kingdom so that we will be empowered to pray for God's glory and honor in our life. When Jesus started his ministry, he set his goal, his goal very clearly by preaching, kingdom of God has come. Repent and receive God's reign. The kingdom of God is an ultimate reality in history and the universe. That means everything else is a penultimate. That means of a secondary importance. Whatever we align with the kingdom of God in our life will abide and abound eternally and gloriously. That's what our Lord taught us in his prayer, the Lord's Prayer. First thing he taught us to do in daily Lord's Prayer is, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come, and thy will be done. God's name is honored and glorified as His kingdom and reign is realized in our life. And that's the first and foremost thing that we pray every day. You know, what we pray every day is not just about our job and our health and uh, even our country, but God's kingdom to come in every area of our life. Amen? So every morning, everyone, uh, every child of God and follower of Jesus Christ, we pray one prayer more than anything else. That is, Lord Jesus, reign in me today. Amen? Lord Jesus, reign in me today. On three, let's say it together. One, two, three. Lord Jesus, reign in me today. That's what we are asking God to, God's kingdom to come in our life. The five sets of a kingdom parables that we studied so far teaches us what we mean when we pray, your kingdom come. So first parable, the parable of sower, we set the understanding, receiving God's word with a deep understanding and appreciation means that your word come, your word come. And the second parable, the parable of wheat and wheat, you know, we, we are taught that uh, we, we shouldn't be patient and we just uprooted the wheat violently, but we wait and grow our wheat. That means your way come. Your way come without violence but patience. And then parable of a mustard seed and the yeast teach us that a little work of God one day will be a wonder, huge wonder in the world. And there we pray, your work may come. And then last week's sermon, parable about uh, hidden treasure and pricey pearls, we say the joy of good news is so great that we'll risk everything for God. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we pray that your wonder come, your wonder come. And the last parable that we're going to look at today actually means when we say your kingdom come means your warning, your warning comes. So one uh, New, uh, New Testament commentator, Frederick Bruner, he summarized this way. He said, 
To pray thy kingdom come in seven parables of Matthew 17 means to pray that gospel may be understood and lived out and hopeful and brought up, I mean brought up and taken seriously. Now with that, let's read our passage today. Let's read Matthew chapter 13, 47 to 52 responsibly. I'm going to read first and then you read the following verse. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected a good fish in the basket and threw the bed away. This is how it will be at the end of age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as the old. Flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. The key word in this final section of Matthew 13 is a throw, throw. You know, that net that was let down in verse 47, and then the bad fish, they, they throw away the bad fish in verse 48, and then treasure they brought out in verse 54, they all came from the same Greek word throw. And Greek is a balo. And we have an English word from this Greek word balo, which is ballistic. You know, we have a horrible weapon of mass destruction called, mass destruction called the ICBM. You know, an intercontinental ballistic missile. Now, the Putin is losing the war. He's kind of threatening to use that. He's, a, he's a bluffing. He's desperate. Hallelujah. Anyway. You know, in this passage, we see the three things that are thrown. The thrown net, thrown fish, and thrown treasure. And each one of them illustrates the important truth about the kingdom of God. So let's look at the first one. First, Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a dragnet. And through the dragnet, Jesus illustrates the reach of God's kingdom. Look at the verse 47. Once again, kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. What is a dragnet? Dragnet was the most ancient form of fishing dating from the third millennium B.C. in Egypt. That means 3,000 years before in Egypt, they've been already fishing by dragnet. Dragnet at the time of Jesus, was a shape uh, much like a long net wall, about a 750 to 900 feet long, and the 25 feet high in its center, and tapering to 12 feet at, uh, at, uh, uh, at its uh, ends. And the lower section of a net wall is uh, weighted down with the sinkers made of uh, metals or stone. And the upper section is kept afloat with a corks. And the dragnet is taken offshore by boat, and sometimes two boats kind of, kind of go together and then try to kind of crawl the fish, and then stretch out and drop, you know, ultimately 
and then parallel to the shore, near the shore, and then when it comes to near the shore, sometimes more than 16 men, depending on the size of a, a dragnet, they slowly pull the net. And then when fish are surrounded, their tendencies will go uh, dive to the bottom, but the weighty section of the net prevent their escape. So when net is brought close to shore, ropes are carefully pulled up on the shore, and then that's how they catch the fish. So dragnet actually mentioned in the Old Testament nine times. And today it is a symbol for reach of God's kingdom. Now, why did Jesus compare the kingdom of God to dragnet? In what ways is the kingdom of God is like a dragnet? Here I find the three core relations. Three core relations. First of all, like a dragnet fishing, evangelism is corporate. Evangelism is a corporate. You know, when Jesus called his disciples, he promised that he will make them a fisher of a man, right? And then when we hear the fisher of man, we kind of think of modern fishing, which is you just take a fishing pole and the bait and then just go out and then throw and then catch a fish. Very individualistic, very solitary. You know, actually, a technical term for such a fishing is an angler. Angler. It's not fisher, it's an angler. You know, ancient people... They did a dragnet corporally. It's a social. And uh, so dragnet, you cannot do alone. You have to work with the people. And I think this is a beautiful illustration of a biblical evangelism. This is one of the main reasons we do house church ministry. You know, we share gospels with our VIPs together as a house church. So it doesn't matter who initially invites the VIP to the house church or calls the VIP to the house church. Once that VIP comes to your house church, that's your VIP, and everyone's a VIP. Amen? And uh, many Christians are shy away from the sharing the gospel because they think evangelism is a hard, and it's a work of just a you know, few super-Christians like a pastors or, you know, whoever, you know. I want to remind you evangelism is every Christian's work, every church's work. And evangelism is supposed to be corporate and social. And when we do together, it's easy. Amen? Isn't that true? You know, last year, what is that, Petare House Church, uh, Regan Jiang, you know, met uh, some Japanese grad students, uh, on, online, and uh, when he found out this, uh, you know, PT student from Emory University coming to Dallas for the clinical rotation, he contacted him and asked him what he need, you know, what kind of need he has, and uh, he found out that he found his uh, temporary housing in the Richardson, but his uh, clinical rotation is uh, South, you know, uh, South Dallas. So he said, oh, how long does it take? And he said, it takes about two and a half hours. He gets up at 5 o'clock. He takes off to home at 5 in the morning to catch the bus to the dart station and then goes take a dart and then take another bus to work. It takes, a, you know, a two and a half hours, something like that, right? So Reagan said, well, you know, I'll give you a ride. Okay. When I heard that, I was so, you know, touched and said, okay, I'll, I'll, Monday I'll volunteer. I, I heard that, uh, you know, it was a real love field because, you know, there are not many airports in Dallas, only in my mind is two. It was a regional, unknown, unnamed airport beyond the 67. 
You know where Highway 67 is? It's on the way to Waco. So, but thank God it was only Monday. Rest of the day, the rest of the house churches are shared. They said, you know, Japanese Christian named Hiroya, he was so touched. And then he came to the house church. And then at the end, they gave him a New Testament, I mean, the, the Japanese English Bible. And then they encouraged him to read. And then he at least left Dallas promising us that he will try to find a church and go to the church. And now I hear the rumor that he, when the training is over, he wants to come back to Dallas. When we do sharing of the gospel together as a house church, it is a possible. It is definitely possible. Second, like a dragnet, kingdom of God is a concealed. Dragnet is a submerged in water and almost invisible. Although it is a wall-like, but it's a see-through and the see-through and the very unnoticed. That's what Jesus told us about kingdom of God in previous parables. It's like a seed that buried on the ground and nobody knows until the harvest time. It looks so small like a mustard seed and yeast. It is a burial like a hidden treasure in the ground. It is mixed with other pearls. So it is not noticed by many. It is concealed. And the speaking of being concealed, I believe that our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate concealed dragnet of God. Why? He came to our world as a small baby. A poor baby in a manger. He grew up as a Galilean Jew, a marginalized Jew. By the way, you take a Livingstone Bible study, you know much I mean, about Jesus in the, such an incredible death. And when you and then he he grew up as a Galilean Jew, and then he came to the Temple of Jerusalem as an ordinary 12-year-old Jewish boy for his bar mitzvah. And then he worked as a carpenter, low-wage, the manual labor. Our Lord Jesus came to our world as an ordinary human being to identify with everyone. Jesus is the ultimate dragnet of God, unnoticeable, yet universally reaching out to everyone. Amen. Third, like a dragnet that catches all kinds of fish, kingdom of God is a comprehensive open to all people. You know, dragnet does not discriminate against the fish. It catches all kinds of fish. It receives and welcomes everyone. And that's what Paul said, Apostle Paul said in Galatians 3.20, 8, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile or neither slave or free or male and female. We are all one in Christ. Because Christ died for all people, all people are invited into the kingdom of God. And that's why, you know, early Christians, they call themselves Catholics, universal believers, according to Paul's word in Ephesians 2, new human race. So speaking about, you know, racist these days, racist is a very common, you know, accusation these days. You know, Christians, we are new kind of racist. You know what kind of racist we are? We are human racist. As long as that person is a human, we are for that person. We are human racist. In the time and world where there are so many problematic ethnic, you know, you know, races, 
let us remember we are eternally human race because Christ loved all. And, uh, you know, God said, the, you know, 1 Timothy 2, 3 says that it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. So as God's kingdom people, we reach out to all kinds of people. Now, second uh, truth, the second thing that was thrown in this story is a bad fish. That is, a, you know, second truth. Now, fishermen threw the bad fish into the furnace. Look at the verse 48. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, and they sat down and collected a good fish in the basket and threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. And by the way, this angel thing, this is not a metaphor. This is real. Bible talks about angel real. There are several kinds of angels in the Bible. The angels are simply messengers, but there is a guardian angels, that, you know, angels that protect each one of us because we are the heir of God's kingdom, and angels are our servants of God's children. So you, do you know you and I have guardian angels? I believe in guardian angels, and I know he's been busy because there are several incidents in my life that took me to you know, presence of Jesus, but I'm, I'm still here. I know he worked hard, and when I get to heaven, he probably said, let me show you what I have done. And then, you know, I'll, I'll say, ooh, you know, I'm probably going to, you probably do the same thing. There's a guardian angel. There is a, another angel called the recording angels, angels who record our deeds and words for the final judgment. And that, that angels will gather all of us. And now the angel will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the Sea of Galilee, there are more than 20 different kinds of fish, but Jewish people didn't eat all of them because according to Leviticus 11, fish without scale and the fin are considered unclean. So they threw away those fishes like eels and catfish as a bad fish. Now, the blazing furnace is a well-known biblical symbol of a hell and its a punishment. And it was mentioned earlier in the parable of the wheat that Jesus said at the harvest, the weeds are gathered and burned at furnace. Now, we see Jesus talking about hell. And do you know the fact that Jesus talked about hell more than anybody in the Bible. Let me repeat that. Do you know Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in the Bible? You know, Luke chapter 15, parable of a rich man, Lazarus. He described hell very much detailed, the great chasm between hell and heaven, and they cannot come over. And the Matthew 15, chapter 25, the parable of a a sheep and goat, at the end, God will divide the people into two groups, and the one will go to eternal, you know, I mean, the God's uh, eternal presence, the other one is eternal press, uh, fire. Jesus not only referenced the hell, he described hell in detail. It was a place of atonement, Luke chapter 16, 25. Unquenchable fire, Mark 9, 42. And the worm does not die, 9, 48. And people will gnash their teeth. In today's passage, in outer darkness, Matthew 25, Jesus actually called hell is a Gehenna, well-known 
garbage dumpster outside of a wall of Jerusalem where they burn the, all the garbages. And because of their garbages, there are a lot of maggots all over. And Jesus said, that's what the hell like. Now, once again, did you know Jesus talked about hell more than heaven? Yes. Jesus talked, you check the reference. Jesus talked to hell more than, you know, he talked about heaven and described it vividly. So there's no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned about absolute reality of hell. That's the second truth today, the reckoning of God's kingdom. You know, Bible is very clear. It is a point for everybody to die once. After that, there will be judgment. Hebrews 9.27. We will face the judgment of God. And depending on our relationship with Jesus Christ, we will go either heaven or hell. Now, non-Christians often ask Christians, how can you, your God of love, allow any of his creatures to suffer unending misery? How can God send people to hell? You know, answer to that question is, how can he not? Why? The fact that God is love makes hell necessary. Let me repeat that. Because God is God of love, is a hell is actually necessary. Let me call, let me, you know, uh, there is a, um, a pastor who wrote a book of you know, Christian theology in plain language. It's a very, I mean, it's okay. But uh, I like this quote. He said, hell is not just a compatible with the God's love, but it is a direct consequence of it. The very God who loves us is the one who respects our decision. He loves us, but he does not force his love on us. To force love is to commit assault. He allows us to decide. He loves us. He encourages our response. He woos us. He pursues us. He urges us, but he does not force us because he respects us. So hell is actually a consequence of a love. You know, if God forces a love, he'll be more like a stalker or much more assaulter. Our God is not like that. You know, to our modern ears, belief in hell feels a harsh, even mean. But scripture not only gives an abundant witness about existence of a hell, but also tells us the, uh, the very concept of a justice. Justice actually requires a help. You know, a few weeks ago when I preached on the, when I talked about the parable of a wheat, do you guys remember? The Immanuel Kant, the father of agnosticism, he didn't believe, you know, he believed in hell. He believed in judgment. Even though he's not sure about, uh, you know, our ability to know God in God's existence. Hell is necessary to make the world work and the good values to be uh, meaningful. We should know that it is not God who wanted to be a, you know, it is, not, it is not God, but it is us who made a God a judge because of our sin and disobedience. You know, we are so self-centered that we, you know, the justice is not natural to us. Justice can be exercised only with a force on upon us. I mean, how many of us We'll drive safely and cordially, mindful of other people, if there's no speed limit. Would you drive, you know, very kindly to other people? You know, 
How many of us voluntarily pay our taxes to government without, you know, uh, IRS? You know, it's a citizen's duty to pay tax, right? Without tax, government cannot function, cannot, you know, run the country, right? But would you give an honest tax without IRS? Well, in school, you know, I taught in university, so, and Baylor and DVU. Imagine if I tell students at the end of the semester, just to write a very thoughtful, well-articulated, well-researched paper, and just, a, you know, no deadline. Just send me by before the end of the semester. Do you think how many students will send me the paper? I doubt it. I doubt it. We, our fallen nature, our sinfulness, made a judgment of God necessary, made a God a judge. Now, according to C.S. Lewis, doctrine of hell, C.S. Lewis is interesting. He said the doctrine of hell displays not just the justice of God, but it's a grace. He said in hell, God makes room for those who are not interested in God. So he said God created a special space for them. So in his famous book, Problem of Pain, this is what he said. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful and rebel to the end. And then he said famous words, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Hell is not that God sent people and locked outside. That's not hell. Hell is a people that, hell, God doesn't condemn people to hell. People choose a hell and they lock it inside. That is a hell. And again, C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, this quote, then John Milton, the one who wrote The Lost Paradise, Paradise Lost, he said, John Milton was right. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in words. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I think that is absolutely true. You know, you know why heaven is wonderful? Because we are all serving each other with love. That's why heaven is wonderful. You know, hell is a place where they don't want to serve anybody except themselves. That's why hell. Actually, this, you know, this is a reality in life here too, right? Anytime you want to serve, serve yourself better, more than anybody in your family, in your relationship, your relationship sooner or later will be like a hell. But when you put other people first, you know, especially in family and the church, you will experience a heaven. Now, he said, there is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of a misery. There is always something they prefer to joy. That, that is a reality. You can see it easily enough in the spoiled child that the sooner misses play and supper than say it was sorry and be friends. You call it sulks. And in adult life, it is a hundred, uh, hundred fine names. Achilles heels, revenge, injured merit and self-respect and tragic greatness and the pro proper pride. And the last quote from the great divorce that uh, I think uh, Han also mentioned it, we, we several times, but it's so, that is there are only two kinds of people at the end. Those say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And the all that are in the hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires a joy will ever miss it. Those who seek will find those who knock. It is open. 
Louis is saying, God, once again, God doesn't condemn us to hell. It is the people who choose to be alone without God. And according to Romans 1, Paul called that, that is the wrath of God. Why is the wrath of God? God leaving us to our own desires. That is the wrath of God. That is the most dreadful thing. You know, someone said there, there is a miserable failure and there is a success which is more miserable than failure. What is success more miserable than failure? Succeeding life without God is ultimately the greatest misery because you are kind of, a, your, your, your spirit and soul is kind of a inflated with the ego. For me, I believe in hell for this very, my main reason to believe in hell, you know, as I said before, it's not a philosophical, like a Kant or even biblical. I kind of biblical, but it's ultimately Christological. Jesus is the one who experienced a hell in life and in death. He experienced a hell on the cross, and according to the Bible, he went down to hell. What he did at hell is a separate issue. But point is, Jesus is the one who knew about hell and tells us about hell. So I take a hell is real. Hell is true. Yeah. And again, I want you to remember, the door of hell is a lock inside. Not outside, it's inside. So let me ask everyone this, uh, today uh, this question. You know, the question today is, are you going to be cut by God? God will cut everyone. That's not the question. real question is, are you going to be kept by God? That is, uh, you know, title of the sermon. Are you going to be kept by God? Because those who want to be released by God, those who want to define their own freedom in their own way, God will release them. God will release them. Those are happy to be with God. You know, those who say, that, I'd rather be with God in hell than heaven by myself, they're the one who will be kept by God. For me, heaven and hell is not a place. It's about relationship. What is your utmost relationship? Where God comes in your relationship? Is that God is center of your life? That's where your heart is? Then you are heaven. Heaven will be growing in you. Now, after finishing this, uh, his seven parables about the kingdom of God, Jesus asked his disciples, verse 51, Have you understood all these things? You know, this is a very important because, you know, I mean, Jesus spoke, and the disciples should understand. Otherwise, how can they, you know, continue, right? And the uh, disciples answer what? Yes. I think their answer, yes, is very naive, you know. It's like, uh, oh, do you understand the beauty? And someone say, yes. Can you really understand beauty simply like that, you know? Do you understand the uh, truth? Yes. You know, I mean, it's not that kind of simple question, right? You know, I heard that one time a physics professor in college saw a student not paying attention, so he asked him, Jack, do you know what electricity is? And these students trying to be uh, sharp and also, you know, you know avoid, uh, uh, get out of this, you know, the situation, he said, 
Well, actually, uh, I had a word on the tip of my tongue, but it just escaped me. And the professor said, ah, what a pity. What a pity. Here was a man, for the first time in human history, understood what electricity is, but it just, you know, lost it. What a pity. What a pity. When disciples say they yes, we know very soon their, 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 their act shows that they have a very limited, shallow understanding of the kingdom of God. Right? So, the amazing thing is what Jesus told them after they say yes. Jesus said, verse 50, uh, uh, 52, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Jesus called his disciples, you are the new scribes. And that is amazing. That is amazing. Because Jesus didn't, you know, disparage or discourage disciples from, you know, where they are, but direct them to where they need to go. And that is none other than you will be my, my scribes, my, my new scribes. Now, Jesus called every, every disciple of his uh, teachers, by the way, you might say, where do you get the uh, scribes? The teachers of the law in the Greek text is the scribes. And, uh, uh, and the scribes, they call the scribes because they hand copy the Bible. There is no printing machine, so they hand copy the Bible. Imagine, you hand copy the Bible so many times, you know. And so as a result, they became, a, a, you know, expert of a law, and they become a teachers of the law. Now, scribes is one of the three Jewish leadership that really oppose Jesus. So high priests, scribes, elders of Israel, repeatedly in passion narrative, they rejected Jesus and plotted to kill Jesus, and they succeeded killing Jesus. And today, Jesus called his disciples, you are new scribes. New scribes. What does it mean? That means, you know, what is the job of a scribes? What is the famous scribes that you know from the Bible? There is a book named after him. Anyone? Say it loud. The first scribe in the Bible is? Come on. We are in the internet. Everybody watching, somebody say, his name is? Are you doing? What's his name? Okay, Hayun. What is his name? I'm going to put my village leader on the spot. You know, that's, that is our the, the reputation of a forest as a biblical loving, you know, I mean. So, Hayun, what's the name of a scribe in the Bible? What's the name of a... All right, sorry. Okay, I know Catherine will hate me putting her husband on the spot. Hayun knows, I, I bet, he's, you know, the... You know, the first scribe in the Bible is a guy named Ezra who led the Israelites from Babylonian exile back to their return to their homeland. And there, he helped them to restore Israel. So when Jesus called his disciples as a scribe, that means he is saying, you are ultimate 
leaders of God's kingdom that restore the kingdom of God and God's reign in this world. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. You know, scribes, they are the experts of the law and the you know, tradition and the wisdom. Jesus said, through me, you can bring out you know, deeper and true ultimate tradition and wisdom to the world. And for that, Jesus, Jesus gave a one parable like a charge. The owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as, old, as well as old. The owner of a house in Greek is called the oikos despotes. Oikos despotes literally means oikos house. Despot means a dictator. It's a very authoritative person who manages a household, you know, a wealth. And the very interesting is that he brings out which treasures first? New or old? If you look at the verse 52, you have to underline the new treasures. If you have a Bible, underline the new treasures. Because Jesus intentionally changed the, you know, in ancient world, including Jewish mindset, Jewish culture, old was always better than new. Old is always better than new. Historians call such a mindset argument of antiquity. Argument of antiquity. What is an argument of antiquity? The older is better and truer than new. Why? Old is proven. But new is unproven. I mean, total opposite of today's mindset. Today, everything is new is good. New iPhone, new, I, you know, whatever, iWatch is better than, you know, old. You know, new is better than old. No, ancient people thought the other way around. Old is better. Old is better. Old is proven. Now, that's how actually Jewish rabbis stood confidently before snooty Greek philosophers. Because the Greek people are known for cultural superiority. You know, Greeks are so arrogant about their own culture. They say those who don't speak Greek, they call them barbarians. Why? They say, bar, bar, bar. Your language sounds like a bar, 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 bar. You're a barbarian. You speak a barbarian. But we speak Greek. You know, the cultural language. You know. So Greek, actually, with Alexander Great, they tried to really enlighten the world, so-called the Hellenization. These are very arrogant people. So when they brag about the philosophy and wisdom of Socrates and Plato, you know how Jewish rabbis you know, counter that? Our philosopher and thinker named Moses and Torah, his law and wisdom is a thousand years older than yours. Therefore, we thumb down you, you Sunni Greek. That's how Jewish people say. Today, Jesus was saying, not old first, but new first. New. What is the new treasures from the storeroom? Jesus talking about himself. Because he's our new creator. In Christ, everything is a new creation. You're, you know, in our forest, I mentioned many times, Greek word has a two new, kainos and neos. Neos is a chronologically new. New, just a new in terms of time. Kainos is a new in terms of quality. Completely novel, you know, you know essentially new. Jesus said, I'm a kainos. I'm a new I'm a new treasure. And, the, and then another thing is that new doesn't mean the old we throw away. No. 
we take the old in, through the new. You know, new doesn't cancel the old. New actually completes the old. Old Testament we don't throw away. Actually, through the New Testament, we understand Old Testament better. Actually, Old Testament helps us understand New Testament better. But it is a Christ that we truly see the world and all the things in our past. On that note, I just want to say this. When you receive Jesus Christ and you become a new creation, everything in your past and the old past is being healed, reconciled, and renewed, and it becomes a part of the new. Amen? That is what Christ is doing for us. That's why Christ is a good news for us. Let me close it. Today, that is our responsibility. Responsibility of God's kingdom people is Jesus saying that I am the new truth that completes every promises and every yearning in the world. And you are my disciples who record these things, who really write these things in your heart and then share it with the rest of the people. That's who we are. And we do it together. Amen? Let's pray.